Well, we are in John 18 this week, and if you remember from last week, we saw uh, the political maneuverings of the Jewish, I guess you could call them a consortium, really, or a delegation almost, of, of elites and grassroots conservatives together. That is, uh, you probably know them as the name of the Sanhedrin and the high priestly family and the scribes and the Pharisees, and together uh, in their attempt to convince Pilate to crucify Jesus. As we saw last week, this group of leaders, they wanted to kill Jesus because he claimed to be the Christ, the son of the living God, and people were actually starting uh, to believe that. The Jewish leadership thought it was better for one man to die rather than, as they saw it, all Israel perish. And of course, the irony of that is that they were right, but not for the reasons they thought. So they needed a reason that would appeal to Pilate and convince him that Jesus needed to die, even as they they needed to convince the crowds too that that Jesus should die. Now remember, just days earlier, and this is what we're celebrating on Palm Sunday, just days earlier, those same crowds had been calling Jesus the heir of David. And at the very least, they saw him as a prophet sent by God. So their solution then, this this group of of Jewish elites really, was to present Jesus to Pilate as a rival king to Caesar, really as a a violent revolutionary akin to Barabbas, because the Romans typically put such men on crosses. Their solution to the crowds was to present Jesus as a false prophet and a rebellious son, and we're going to see that in the week's coming up. And the penalty for for such a charge, according to the law of Moses, and you'll find this in in Deuteronomy, was death by stoning, which was exactly how they treated Stephen in the book of Acts. And you usually follow that up by displaying the man's body on a tree until nightfall. Now, the question is, why a tree? Well, because in the world of the Old Testament, and it wasn't just the world of the Old Testament, other cultures thought this too, To be hung on a tree was a symbol of a man cursed by God. And this is precisely how Jewish people viewed crucifixion in the first century. So killing Jesus by way of crucifixion would be a fitting end to what the the Jewish leadership saw as a would-be king who claimed to be the Christ, the son of the living God. So what these men intended as evil against Jesus... God not only planned, but intended for our good. See, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the righteous and glorious Son of the Father, who was put to death on the cross as a rejected king, in turn, taking the curse and shame in the place of a rebellious son, Israel, that put him there. And it is through his death and resurrection that both Israel and in turn the world would have life. That's what's in view in our passage, really this whole section of John. So this week we will be focusing on, I guess what you could say is the pilot side of things and Pilate's interaction with Jesus inside uh, the military headquarters in Jerusalem. So we're in chapter 18. Let me pick it up with verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord 
or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to them, said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is truth, fully revealed to us in your Son, who took on flesh for us and our salvation. We thank you for this time we have together to meditate on his word, to meditate on who he is. We pray that the Spirit would be amongst us now, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts that turn to you and listen to your voice alone. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we read immediately in verse 33 that Pilate returned uh, to the Praetorian headquarters. That's what the the Praetorian guards headquarters there in uh, Jerusalem. And remember from last week that this Jewish, I don't know, you can call them a delegation, had refused to enter the building both as a power move against Pilate, forcing him to come outside to them, but also as a show of their righteousness so as not to be defiled by entering a Gentile residence. Now, just briefly as an aside, there is no law in the Old Testament that says a Jew could not enter a Gentile's home or some kind of headquarters or whatever, or that doing so would make a person ritually unclean. That's a later tradition added onto the law, and Jesus walks right through it on numerous occasions, including this one. Now, Pilate began his interrogation by asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's emphasis in asking that question is on the pronoun you. And it gives the impression that he's, he's either maybe astonished or, or perhaps confused that, that Jesus or anyone else would claim about him that he's a king. See, Jesus didn't have an army, and he uh, had not led an uprising or a coup like, say, Barabbas had tried to do. There was nothing about him at all that said violence or strength. And in the ancient world, to be a king was, well, it was to deal in, in violence or to at least have the appearance of strength. Jesus didn't look like any of that. Jesus didn't look regal. He didn't look powerful. He looked like a peasant. He looked like a a nobody. So we should really kind of read that question as, are you a king? It would be like asking me, are you a pro basketball player? I may look like, you know, many things, but pro athlete or even ex-pro athlete is not one of them and not even close. And to Pilate, nothing about Jesus said king. Nothing at all. So Jesus, in turn, asked Pilate, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? This is fascinating. 
like with, with Honest, the former high priest, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is turning the tables here. He, he's interrogating Pilate's motives. It's like he's asking, why are you asking me if I'm a king? Are you giving in to Jewish pressure or is this your idea? And as an aside, you know, throughout this, this whole section of John, you never, you never get the sense that Jesus was out of his depth or, or lacking control or was intimidated by the powers that were put over him. You know, even as he was bound and delivered, you know, over from place to place, he was still authoritative. And here he is calmly. He's not being arrogant. He's not being a jerk. No, no he's calmly putting Pilate on the defensive with an honest and incisive question. Pilate responded with, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. So he both admits that Jesus is here because of Jewish pressure, but also as, as governor, he really has no idea who Jesus is. And considering that just days earlier, Crowds of people had been hailing Jesus as the Messiah and King. This is a bad look, and it, and it highlights Pilate's incompetency. If, if you're a good governor, you know what's happening on the streets of, of your city, and if, especially really the capital. And, and if people are calling someone else a king as a Roman governor, you would be aware of this, and you'd be wanting to do something about this. Even so... Despite Pilate's ignorance, Pilate hits on an important theme that runs throughout the story. And it's the idea that Jesus was handed over or delivered from one group or authority to the next. So Judas betrayed Jesus and delivered him over to the high priest, who in turn handed him over to the Sanhedrin, who in turn handed him over to Pilate, and Pilate would eventually... It's the same language being used, hand Jesus over to be crucified. So it's not merely the Jewish elites that were responsible for Jesus' death. Everyone was, Jew and Gentile alike, disciples and enemies alike. So behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why? Because the world put him there. So Pilate ends this, this first foray with, with, with the question, what have you done? And this, this is a simple question, but it's, it's actually a very good question because, again, Jesus, he does not appear to be a king to Pilate because he's not pursuing kingship or power or authority as the world pursues it. Again, this has to be said. He's not violent. He's not attempting to overturn the current regime. He's not taking up arms or starting a mob. He's not trying to defeat his opponents or calling for their heads. He's not even resisting arrest, despite the obvious sinful and evil intent to kill him. You know, we live in a country that has been deeply influenced by Christianity, so the practice of the nonviolent handing over of power is normal to us. And when it doesn't happen, we are shocked by it. It's a real blessing we live in a country where this has been the case for hundreds of years. You know, and it's, it is shocking when you see this kind of things happens, and rightly so. And I, you know, I am 
unbelievably thankful for the impact of Christianity on the wider American culture. But for most of world history, for most of world history, it has been assumed that violence, force, and aggression is how you come into power and how you keep it. Jesus addressed Pilate's last question, what have you done? By way of Pilate's initial question, are you a king? By addressing this very thing. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So what Jesus has in mind is not that his kingdom is merely spiritual, only existing in heaven and in turn has nothing to do with this world and the political regimes currently in place. Now, many Christians in America over the last 150 years have misunderstood Jesus in just this way. It's, uh, it's like the, the meme I, I've seen making the rounds, I don't know, over the last year or so that says things like, I stand for the flag and I kneel for the cross. And it is, you know, you see it on bumper stickers and maybe a Facebook avatar or whatever. It's why, for example, Francis Schaeffer wrote things like, Christianity is not just involved with salvation, you know, just my heart and where I go when I die, but with the total man that is every last aspect of you in the total world, as in this life right now, material realm we live in. Jesus is not interested in helping people escape the earth. His kingdom is not somewhere else. No, he's, he's telling Pilate that he's reclaiming and redeeming every last bit of this world. Rome thinks it has an empire. Just you wait. Just you wait. That's what Jesus is saying. Rome, you know, like America, is going to pass away. Rome did pass away. America one day will pass away too, but the kingdom of God will never pass away. So what Jesus has in mind is that his kingdom is not like any other human kingdom on offer. Not at all. It's why his description in the Sermon on the Mount of what his disciples look like in this world as members of the kingdom of God is radically different from how the world looks and acts and why Christians often struggle to take him seriously about it. If his kingdom were like the world's kingdom, as he says, his servants would have acted exactly as Pilate expected them to act, with violence in an attempt to overthrow the governing powers, both Jew and Gentile, and they certainly would have fought against the Jews when they arrested Jesus, like Peter tried to do in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus rebuked him for it. It's why, for example, before then, in fact, a pretty decent amount of time before that, previous to to Jesus' arrest, Peter rebuked Jesus. Now think about that. Peter rebuked Jesus in Matthew 16 when Jesus said he was headed to Jerusalem to die at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees. As everybody knows, Kings don't win kingdoms by dying at the hands of their enemies. You win by taking your enemies down. So Peter's not alone in in thinking this sort of way. In John 6, for example, after the feeding of the 5,000, 
The crowds were so taken with Jesus because of what they witnessed, they were moving towards violence in an attempt to make Jesus king, and he refused to let that happen. This is not the way the kingdom of God enters in the world. In fact, it cannot. It cannot. I mean, how can God redeem? How can he turn his enemies into his families if he approaches the world by force? There would be no humans to redeem because we would all be dead, both Jew and Gentile alike. It's precisely why Jonah was so angry. He was so angry with with God when the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, repented and turned to God. Jonah knew. In fact, we looked at this last Sunday night. This was his prayer. He knew God was compassionate and tenderhearted. He didn't want to preach about this God, and he was angry when God showed them compassion. Jonah would rather die than see his enemies turn to God and that God was responsible for their turning. Are you kidding me? See, the problem some American Christians face is that we think the right posture to take in terms of Christ and his kingdom is like Peter's or like Jonah's. We think a willingness to kill for the kingdom or the desire, at the very least, maybe through words or avatars or whatever we're posting online, to see our cultural enemies destroyed is what is righteous and good. But that's how the kingdom shows up, and it doesn't. It doesn't. You show me how fighting a culture war since the 1970s has helped, and I'll gladly turn. But it hasn't. It's actually sinful, and it's worldly, and it's an antichrist view of the kingdom. Jesus does not need us to win anything. Again, go read the Sermon on the Mount. You might be tempted if you read there, to either dismiss Jesus' teaching as irrelevant or not applying to our cultural moment, or, or worse, we might pull a Jonah and be angry with him for teaching such things. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You've got to be kidding, Jesus. What Jesus is after is not killing. It's, it's the willingness This is where it gets crazy. It's the willingness to come and die for the sake of him and his kingdom. It's like what Jesus said to Peter and the disciples after that time Peter tried to rebuke Jesus in Matthew 16. He writes, or he says, excuse me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. So what do we do? I mean, what do we, what do we gain if we, if we fight like the world fights and say we, like so many Christians want to do, want to take back America for those in our tribe? Now, we might have gained a political foothold, but it may have cost us our souls. 
You know, our calling is not to wage war as the world does. It's not a willingness to kill, either literally with violence or figuratively with our words or our arguments and how we, we talk about those we disagree with. It's the call to come and die. Now, should we speak truth to power? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus clearly did. And what did it cost him to do so? Now, think back to that last line in Matthew 16 that I just read, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. When was that fulfilled? When was that fulfilled? When did they see Jesus come into his kingdom? Well, it began with his brutal death on the cross at the hands of his enemies. And it continued with his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. I mean, that's Daniel 7 and Revelation 4 and 5 confirmed where he is ruling now, right now, over all things. And his kingdom has grown exponentially since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. His kingdom is here. It has been on the move for 2,000 years. And if we are not our own, but belong body and soul to our Lord Jesus Christ, then our calling is not to take up arms. Though I'm not talking about the defense of the weak in that. I'm not talking about that. It's, it's actually to not win at all. If Christ is king, what do we need to win? No, it's to come and die for him and his kingdom. So for example, we come and die every single Sunday when we submit our desires in our lives to God. Or as a pastor friend of mine recently put it, a Christian out of regular weekly worship is an oxymoron. Why? Because fundamental to our being is the practice of dying to self and living to God, patterning our lives after his life as six days and a Sabbath rest. Again, if we belong body and soul to the triune God, then all of life is lived out in his kingdom, all of it. So our call to come and die, well, that extends to our everyday ordinary life, our marriages, our work, our children, our neighbors. And if we're not willing to, to come and die in those places, in those places where, you know, the 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 difficulty may be small in a day-to-day -day irritation or whatever it may be. You know, in a lot, of, a, lot of, in a lot of ways, Christians are not willing to come to die even in those, those places. Well, when the crisis really comes, when it really hits, and whatever shape that takes, whether personally or culturally or whatever, we should not expect to come and die then either. So if you can't do the practice in your daily life with the little things, don't expect to do it in the big things either. And yet our call is the habitual coming and dying to our God for the sake of neighbor day in, day out. Now, Pilate's response is, ah, so you are a king. And he thinks Jesus has tripped, him, tripped up and, and implicated himself. And well, in a certain sense, he's right. Jesus does not deny that he's a king. No, he says, it's on your mouth, brother. You've said it. In fact, he, he doubles down on that, but not in a way that, that Pilate actually understands. Jesus says, for this purpose I was born, which is a statement about his humanity, 
If this purpose I have come into the world, which is a statement about his divinity, so he's signaling to Pilate that he's no mere human clamoring after a throne. No, he's the son of man of Daniel 7, sent by God, equal to God, in glory and honor. And as he says, he bears witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. This is a familiar-sounding statement with Jesus. If you go through the book of John, you find all kinds of things like this. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And his sheep, who are in the truth, who are in him, know his voice and listen to him. So Jesus is not making a, a philosophical or scientific argument for what truth is. Those sorts of arguments, as, as philosopher Richard Rorty said years ago, are a complete waste of time. Things are either true or false. That's it. Things are either true or false. The question is, what's your measure? What's your standard? Jesus, in this incredibly, really, it's a very personal moment with Pilate, says to him, he himself is the truth. He is the word of God come in the flesh. He is the wisdom of God offering life to whoever wants it. So in this moment, in a much deeper, more compassionate and personal way than what Jonah did for Nineveh, Jesus is appealing to Pilate, eye to eye, face to face, man to man, and inviting him to repent and turn to him. So what Pilate thought was, an interrogation of a would-be king was, in reality, the king of kings and lord of lords, not merely interrogating Pilate, though he did turn the tables on him, but more so the son of God making an appeal to Pilate, this you know, incompetent, brutal governor to find life in Jesus. And when you really think about it, when you really stop to think that this is what Jesus is doing, it's, it blows my mind. It's unbelievable. There, there's no God like our God who offers mercy and forgiveness to the Ninevehs and to the Pilots of this world. Pilate dismisses Jesus with, what is truth? It's a way of saying he will not listen. He will not turn and find life in God. And the thing is, God throughout Scripture poses the question, will you listen over and over again? Will you listen to me or will you listen to someone or something else or perhaps worse, your own heart? And clearly, Pilate decided he'd listen elsewhere. But what about us? You know, it's like how the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 multiple times where he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So he, he's re actually referring, Psalm 95 refers to the people of God in the wilderness who like Adam always faced the temptation to harden their hearts and refused to listen to God. We face that too. We face that too. And our prayer ought to be, may that not be us. May we not harden our, hell, our hearts in rebellion. May we not be indifferent to our God or rebuke him when we disagree with him or grow angry because he is kind and compassionate to people we dislike or perhaps hate. 
or when the way of life he's called us to live doesn't look as relevant or as appealing as what is on offer with the world. So when he calls us to to come and die, which he does every single day in every single relationship you have, in every place you go, may we remember that our life is not found in us. Our life is found in him. Our shepherd has come for us. He gave his life for us, and we know his voice. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you've given us the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He came for us. He gave his life for us and our salvation. He is the truth. Lord, may we listen to him. May you continually through your spirit turn us back to him. May we hear his voice and want to walk in his ways. And when we do not, Lord, may we be cut to the core and want to turn back. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.